0: welcome back everybody what's up episode 10 of martial media montage it's been a minute uh i've been busy with uh the service as well as uh my second job at on nights uh doing ups i probably won't be doing that for too much longer because it's just so very taxing on the body as well as the mind and uh you know i don't have necessarily as much time as i would like to dedicate to this as well as things at home and so forth uh I'm gonna average maybe one, at least a minimum, to maybe two a week, depending on if uh, time permits. But as is tradition, I will open up with Taj Mahal's "Giant Step," the double LP. Very underrated uh, artist, as well as the album. But uh, I'm gonna talk "Jingle All the Way," 1996, Gargoyles the animated series, Turbo mini, as well as. Um, pantera's great southern trend kill as well as mud honey's piece of cake well, let's get right to it jingle all the way in the spirit of the uh, season right it's christmas and as well as uh i wanted to talk about pantera's great southern trend kill because of the song tens on there primarily and uh, that is one last little tidbit at the end of this episode that i will talk about but uh as is tradition episode 10 going with 10 As well as uh, it being the holiday season, I'm going to try and talk a little more uh, Christmas movies, uh, whether they be horror, comedy, whatever. Okay. A 1996 comedy, Jingle All the Way, was made, directed by Brian Levant, starring Hey Arnold Shortman, Shorts and Eggnog. Now, obviously, I made that last pod up. I thought it was funny. (laughs) Uh, And comedian Sinbad as two rival fathers, uh, mattress salesman Howard Langston, Arnold, which I had no idea was going to be my job. But... Uh, He didn't mind doing that profession in the film, he later stated. Uh, He thought he was a full-time Turbo Man and postal worker Larrabee Sinbad uh, desperately trying to purchase a Turbo Man in the film action figure Uh, for their respective sons, of course, on a last-minute shopping spree on Christmas Eve. The film featured a cast that included Phil Hartman, rest in peace, uh, The Simpsons' Troy McClure, of course, Rita Wilson as the mother, and Jim Belushi, as well as Anakin Skywalker which I didn't annotate his actual name but we're just going to continue calling him Anakin Skywalker from Phantom Menace episode 1 Star Wars. It features two different release dates in the US, November 16th, 1996 in the Mall of America in Minnesota and November 22nd, 1996 nationwide. Its budget was $75 million and grossed at the box office collectively 129.8 mil, basically 130 million. So almost double not for a bad Goofy comedy holiday film for the kids as well as uh, adults. The film itself was inspired by real like uh, toy sellouts from the 80s and 90s, such as the Cabbage Patch Kids. The film was shot and delayed uh, the newest installment of Fox's Planet of the Apes. Uh, Producer Chris Columbus also rewrote the script with Sinbad to be casted instead of Joe Pesci as Myron. So, old Mr. Sticky Bandit, or the Wet Bandits, if you will, was supposed to strike again, but got canned. Filmed in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and St. Paul of Minnesota after five weeks of production moved to California where the end of the parade was shot. The last sequence were Arnold's in the uh, live-action suit, of course. Uh, The swift production meant that merchandising was limited to replica Turbo Man action figures used for the film. There was a lawsuit held over the film's head because Fox was ordered to pay, I believe, $19 to Murray Hill, uh, a publisher, for uh, stealing the idea for the film. The verdict in randy cornfield's original uh him being the original writer it was overturned uh, in his favor the film is the third and final collaboration between sinbad and phil hartman after conehead's 1993 and one i've never heard of a house guest of 1995 and the last film featuring troy mcclure's voice actor from the simpsons as i stated earlier phil hartman rest in peace brother uh to be released during his lifetime as when he passed in 1998 In 2014, unbeknownst to probably everyone listening right now, that there was a sequel with Larry the Cable Guy. I'm sure it flopped. No thanks, uh, Mater. I will pass. The original writer, uh, Cornfield, wrote the script after witnessing his in-laws go to a toy store in Santa Monica, California at dawn in order to get his son a Power Ranger toy, uh, Cornfield's son, the Power Ranger toy. Rest in peace, Green Ranger. Again, that's the second shout-out to you on this show. The rewrite by Christopher Columbus also experienced a similar situation in 95 when he went to get a Buzz Lightyear action figure uh, released the same year as the film. Brian Levant was uh, hired as director, and he understood the humor to the dark side of Christmas. The film marks Arnold's fourth appearance as the lead in a comedy following Twins, 88, Kindergarten Cop, Who's Your Daddy and What Does He Do, made in 1990. I I can't help but use his voice. It's just... Very fitting. <laughs> Junior, 1994, uh, Arnold reportedly uh, for his role as Howard was given $20 million for the job. That's that's a lot. Arnold was happy to play a regular guy in the film because he normally didn't in most of his films. He was some sort of agent or killer, or whatever the case may be. Sinbad thought that uh, he messed up his opportunity because at the time he was doing a US, uh, USO show with Hillary Clinton and Cheryl Crow in Bosnia and Herzegovina. however you pronounce that country apologies Uh, but he was still casted regardless sinbad throughout the film improvised most of his lines and to our surprise so did i most of my responses to sinbad were off you know off rip off my hip (laughs) as i stated earlier filming locations uh, i also discovered that santa's fighting sequence was shot in pasadena at a furniture warehouse Shifting to other aspects of the film, Tim Flattery crafted and designed Turboman, Booster, and Dementor, and helped make the full suit for the film's climax. The film was shot from February through August of 1996, released after uh, editing in November of that year. The film released on VHS in October of 97, and the following year, uh, 1998, on DVD. And then it was uh, released in December 2004 on DVD – or excuse me, re-released on – uh, yes, on DVD in 2004, followed by an extended director's cut in October of 07 known as the Family Fun Edition. How many versions of this same exact film do we need? But whatever. I think one is fine. Holy crap. Uh, so get this. In 2008, the Family Fun Edition also came out on Blu-ray. Yay! Because we all need five copies of the same cult classic mediocre comedy about Christmas. Thank you, Fox. I mean that wholeheartedly I mean, and lightly as well. I think it's funny. So the reception overall, overall for its uh, opening November 22nd worldwide rather than November 16th just in Minneapolis uh, in the Twin Cities St. Paul made $12.1 million, uh, in its first weekend, opening at number four behind Star Trek's first contact, Space Jam and Ransom. The film released in the UK on December 6th, 1996 and topped the country's box office that weekend. Critically acclaimed reception and reviews. uh, Now, Rotten Tomatoes says it's at 20% approval rating. Yeah, fuck off. You half twit, half fruit, half vegetable rating website. Anyway, Metacritic is no better, saying it's 34%. Ooh, a total of 14% higher. Approval base. No thanks. In my opinion, I think it at least deserves a 60. It's a solid representation of Christmas as well as comedy and the dark side as well. Yeah, 60 D minus, whatever you want to give it. I think around that area is a much better uh, quality uh, rating. The film is much better than this, than the sequel, which that's a guarantee, which was a straight to DVD release in December of 2014, produced by wrestling WWE studios and 20th Century Fox. It's a similar plot to the original, but uh, none of the original cast or writers and all of that. It's completely scrapped and brand new. I'm sure it sucked, and I'm glad it did, and I'm sure it was a failed attempt. I will never watch it. Flip side, according to IMDb, it has a 5.7 out of 10 from 105,569 reviewers. So what did I say? I mean, if you round 5.7, that's a 6. Well-deserved. Little trivia. So, uh, pun intended there, little trivia, because Vern Troyer... Mini Me from Austin Powers, Rest in Peace, was the shortest Santa to get punched in the sequence in the warehouse. Overall, the film has a special place in my heart, especially being an 80s and 90s kid. You know, whether it was uh, good or bad and then, it still now holds a special place in my heart for me. And how often do you hear Arnold say, Put that cookie down now? You know, you only do in that film, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. In the spirit of it being the 10th episode, I would like to discuss one of my favorite installments of this franchise, Jason 10. Oh yeah. It starts with Jason Voorhees, cryogenically frozen in the beginning of the 21st century, and is discovered in the 25th century and taken to space. He becomes thawed and begins a killing spree on the crew that has transported him. IMDB gave it a 4.4 out of 57,476 reviewers, which... Uh, I guess maybe by critically acclaimed reviewers, uh, sure it's justified, but I'd still give it at least like a five and a half. I disagree though. Uh, It's not the first few installments, but it's not as bad as Jason Nine Goes to Hell. You know, I would at least once again, yeah, probably give it a five and a half. Uh, Starring Kane Hodder as Jason and featuring David Cronenberg, yes, Videodrome's uh, director David Cronenberg as himself, or excuse me. As Dr. Wimmer, no one else is worth mentioning as notable actors, in my opinion. (laughs) Fun facts. While the film, a uh, critical and financial failure, in its initial release, uh, it made more than triple the cost of production in DVD and theater sales. Uh, Therefore, statistically, it is still the most successful Friday the 13th film overall. It is also the least censored film within the series, only making a few cuts to even, excuse me, in order to achieve the R rating. Lastly, with a little bit of trivia and the like uh, the, of the previous installment, Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, 1993, New Line Cinema was unable to legally include the Friday the 13th in the main title because Paramount Pictures still owned the trademark uh, title. Interesting enough, this film also includes two of my favorite kills by the immortal man-beast that is Jason Voorhees. There is a girl who gets her face frozen by a liquid nitrogen, and smashed into a bloody mess on the counter, as well as the hologram sleeping bag uh, kill that where there are girls in a sleeping bag that he picks up and repeatedly smacks them against a tree. Two of my favorite all-time slasher kills in any film, period. So good, it's just satisfying. The film released April twenty-sixth, two 2002, according to IMDb, but at the top of the page it says 2001, so I'm not necessarily quite sure. We'll just call it New Millennia Time Frame. The film was directed by James Isaac, and its budget was eleven million. It opened with six million dollars uh, grossing, and overall grossing thirteen million, and worldwide collective seventeen million. So it did make six million—nothing, you know, to brag about or too crazy, but still a positive for New Line Cinema. Uh, James Isaac, for you—excuse uh, me, James Isaac, uh, for you horror nuts out there—also did House Three, aka Horror Show. It wasn't the strongest uh, within the series, but it wasn't bad. The first two are definitely better. First being much more horror-oriented, the second one being a little more adventurous, and the third one, eh, it's not bad. It's definitely better than the fourth. This would be Kane Hodder's final portrayal of Jason until his reprise role in 2017 for the Friday the 13th video game. He is even referred to as the Uber Jason because of his upgraded armor for the regenerative uh, mechanism in space that uh you know that of super shredder in my opinion and uh, Terminator 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 excuse me yeah terminator. damn it arnold no teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 secret of the use uh, super shredder shout out to Rokusaki, saki shredder transition to the film uh it's way made to retain an audience interest uh, it was excuse me it was created in order to maintain an audience uh, interest in the character for when Freddy vs. jason was filmed the film was uh canceled by Todd Farmer, or excuse me, y- yes, who plays Dallas, or no, Todd Farmer, excuse me, let me just move on, fuck, Todd Farmer plays Dallas in the film, and the previous sentence I stated was his pitch to have the film uh, in order to retain an audience, how about we send him to space, that was basically the pitch to create Jason Ten as well as they went off that spin-off pitch in order to make Freddy vs. Jason, that's what I was trying to say, I can't even read my own fucking writing and it's clearly legible, anyway, moving on, This was his way of advancing the series, and it did, in my opinion. Uh, They would make—I wish they would make a Jason Eleven continue to where he lands after reaching the high speeds of space and crash landing wherever the hell he landed. Uh, It was filmed in Toronto, and Harry Manfredini, of course, scores the OST original soundtrack as expected. The film was released on VHS and DVD in October uh, eighth of two thousand two, released on Blu-ray years later in twenty thirteen. Despite the initially negative reviews and reception from critics, the film has seen a retrospective gain of popularity. For instance, when the head frozen in liquid nitrogen, then shattered, was singled out as a highlight of the film. As I stated before, clearly others love it as much as I do. They even decided to test that uh, theory on an episode of Mythbusters in 2009. So clearly some scientists had a faint fascination interest in horror and the film theory which is compelling enough for them to even test it out cool in my book this film with its uh, series overall this episode or this i guess uh, installment if you will is within my top five of the entirety of the series for sure uh i think jason lives episode six might be my favorite opening sequence where he gets uh, struck by lightning but that's not you nor there it took the franchise into different lengths and heights, and i.e. outer space, ha ha ha. But it had some clever kills and ideas thrown in there that created a cult uh, classic among fans of the franchise. So thank you, James Isaac. Make episode 11. That would be wonderful. And go get yourself some uh, box office money for me. You will certainly get some. Okay, transitioning to Pantera. The Great Southern Trendkill is the eighth album by the band and was released May seventh, 1996 through East and West Records. Or just East-West, I guess, however you want to look at it. It reached number four on the Billboard 200 and stayed there for 16 weeks. Tickle Me Philip Anselmo, as I like to call him, recorded vocals alone in Trent Risner from Nine Inch Nails, his uh, Nothing Studios in New Orleans, while Dimebag, Rex, and Vinny recorded at Chase and Jason Studios and Dalworthington uh, Gardens. This would be Pantera's last studio album produced by Terry Date, who had worked with them since Cowboys from Hell, 1990. Recorded from uh, October of 1995 until February of 1996, this groove metal album uh, comes in at about 53 minutes and five seconds. Uh, between far b- this album itself is between Far Beyond Driven of 1994 and official live 101 one proof of 97. It featured three singles, Drag the Waters, Suicide Note, and Floods. I chose to speak on the album's behalf because I didn't feel among the fans that this really gets spoken of much, at least within their catalog of music. It is my least favorite of their albums overall, but it did feature the song Tens, and in part of being my uh, 10th episode, I will get to that at the end, uh, the meaning behind the song. I digress. Floods. The album's longest song contains a gassar, gassar, yeah, a gassar, a guitar solo considered by many to be Dimebag's finest. Let me flip the record. All right, Taj Mahal, side two. Hell yeah! <clears throat> guitar World magazine voted it as the 32nd greatest solo of all time. Dimebag's highest rankings of solos, according to their scale, in a guitar world magazine from cemetery gates at number 35 and walk at number 57 i'm glad walk is low like i I definitely like walk but i just think it's overplayed they have a much better catalog of uh, songs in my opinion the album was even included as a dlc downloadable content for rock band the video game with the exception to the song suicide note part one i couldn't find anything about that but to me that makes sense because kids are playing this game and what parent wants to see their kids playing a song called suicide note just saying makes the most sense to me the album also features tracks war nerve 13 steps to nowhere and the underground in america which those are the standout tracks to me uh those are the ones that i definitely listen to the most along with the ones i mentioned the others are unnamed i mean obviously if you want to look it up bombings look it up Uh, The last time I really uh, held this CD was actually uh, I bought it for a buddy of mine uh, at work, and I saw it sealed at a thrift store a few years ago. Or actually, no, it wasn't a thrift store. It was a record store. Uh, Knowing he was a fan as much as I was, if not maybe perhaps more than I was at the time, that is. And I surprised him with it, and he played it in his truck everywhere we went for a good while. So community and love through groove metal is that's wonderful. I'm glad that I was able to provide that for him. It was a uh, cow records. I believe in ocean beach, uh, San Diego is where I picked it up. I also frequently get schooled when it comes to middle music from my buddy, Austin, teaching me the tricks of the trade, which I know I can do vice versa for him when it comes to punk music. So you got your number there, bud. <laughs> what I mean is, uh, thanks to, you know, him on that. And I don't have much to say really about, you know, these Cowboys from hell. I mean, It's a a cool album, I just don't admittedly listen to it as much as their others. I'd still say give it an earshot. Uh, It deserves more recognition out there for those of you uh, groove metal enthusiasts. Speaking of which, uh, as far as artists who I feel as if deserve a little more recognition is the band Mud Honey, especially their album Piece of Cake, the third studio album by the Grunge Band. I recall picking up this CD at a hole-in-the-wall record shop called Cal Records as well. I definitely remember it. The artwork has a hole punch through it. I don't know if somebody uh, perhaps just hole punched it since it was used or if that's what they do at the record store, but that was how I picked it up. Uh, anywho, recorded and released October 13th, 1992. It was their first release uh, through Reprise Records uh, featuring songs uh, Suck You Dry, Blinding Sun, and which are still consistently utilized in their live set today, which is actually pretty cool. Its length is 44 minutes and 33 seconds, labeled as grunge garage punk. And that's that's a proper label for it. I, I could definitely see that. I give it that. It's much better than shoegazing. What the hell is that? Between the albums, Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge, 1991, and My Brother, uh, <laughs> my brother the Cow, 1995. I laugh because it's just silly. Uh, despite it being released right at the peak of the grunge scene, the band was not a critical success or commercially successful as well. However, the album did sell over 150,000 copies on its initial release, and Spin listed it as number 11 on its list of top 20 albums of 1992. It is also the only album to chart chart the Billboard 200, where it peaked at 189. The album has 17 songs, four being uh, untitled, and less than a minute each. They're all about 30 seconds long. I mean, it sounds about right for your average punk song, right? I suppose I chose two albums uh, this time around that I enjoy, but couldn't find too much written on them uh, other than what I was able to gather for you guys right now, which isn't saying much about it because they're both quality uh, records. I mean, they obviously sound different, but I mean, you know, it's all mood-based, whatever you're in the mood to listen to. The cover art is really cool. It's drawn in in my perspective as like a Louisiana French style from like the 1800s, like Matisse, Monet type thing. And the tracks for the uh, most part are all really good. They're all really good bangers. And the band did help set the standard for the grunge uh, bands like STP, Stone Temple Pilots, uh, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden so they could move forward with their music. This band, like the Meat Puppets, Flipper, Husker Du, and others, as well as Slint, get lost in the sauce. Uh, I, I feel like I'm going to have to talk about Slint one of these days on an episode for sure. Although not much info on this record, as I stated, regardless, it is a solid group that if you want that grungy garage punk that you haven't heard in a long time or period and are interested, then you know check it out. Next, I would like to talk to you guys about this show. stop it there because it's a it's a minute long of just basically keith david talking but you get the idea back to taj mahal side two gargoyles aka gargoyles uh the goliath chronicles an animated series produced by disney television animation in collaboration with jade animation and tama productions for its first two seasons and Nelvana. yep melvin's nirvana mixed together just kidding (laughs) And writers for the final season. I just thought it was funny. The show aired October 24th, 1994 to February 15th of 1997. The series features a species of nocturnal creatures, i.e. gargoyles, that turn to stone during the daylight. The story goes, after spending a millennia or a thousand years in an enchanted petrified state the gargoyles who have been transplant transplanted yeah the transplants good job t- uh fucking travis barker transported to medieval scotland are reawakened in modern day new york city and take on the role of secret night of the uh secret nighttime protectors if you will not the stone protectors i will definitely talk about them perhaps another time and for those of you listening you're probably like what the fuck is the stone protectors cartoon then they made a beat them up on super nintendo neither here nor there moving on The show was noticed for a relatively dark tone, complex story arcs, melodrama, and character arcs. They were heavily employed throughout the series, as were Shakespearean themes. I'll get into that a little later. The series received favorable comparison to Cyber 6 Batman and X-Men, and in my opinion, it shows because the overall tone and animation are worth the justified juxtaposition in relation to that. A video game adaptation and spin-off series uh, were released in 1995. Excuse me. Side note, the game is a beautiful 16-bit uh, action platformer with solid sprite work and action sequences uh, for the Sega Genesis Model 1, 2, or 3. Loose, the cartridge goes for around $40, complete in its original plastic case for $175, roughly. Now, if you have the cardboard box edition, that isn't necessarily too beaten up. The version can fetch you around $250. So if you have that copy, find it. Either play it or, by all means, sell it and pay your phone bill because phones are fucking expensive. <laughs> or if you want a new one, I believe it's around $350 that I've seen. Now back to the show. The story uh, line continued from 2006 to 2009 in a comic book series of the same name produced by uh, slave, slave Labor Graphics. That's a horrible name. They should have changed that, but that's what it was called. And was again revived by Dynamite Entertainment uh this year, actually. Goliath was voiced by none other, as I stated, than They Lives Keith David. Shout out to John Carpenter in that film, classic. Roddy Piper, right? Anyway, more on the character voice acting, which included an alumni from the Star Trek franchise, like Marina Sirtis and Jonathan Frakes, Deanna Troy, and uh William Riker from The Next Generation, as well as many more. I just didn't name them. There was like probably ten more Star Trek uh Actors that I just didn't bother naming. I still haven't watched any Star Trek TV, and I, however, I did enjoy the newest films, and I haven't really given much of a chance because I've always been more of a Star Wars guy, uh, primarily episodes one through six, not seven, eight, and nine's politically correct agenda, in my opinion, of course. Fun fact: Desilu Studios produced the original series with William Shatner, so without Lucille Ball's uh, support, there would be no Star Trek for all of you Trekkies out there. If you didn't know already. There were a total of 78 episodes produced for the gargoyles. As I stated before, loosely the story goes, gargoyles are betrayed and slaughtered by humans and the remainders are magically cursed to sleep until the uh, castle uh, rises above the clouds, uh, in quotes apparently. In 1994, billionaire David Zanatos... (laughs) It just sounded funny to me. Purchases the castle and has it reconstructed on top of a uh, New York skyscraper, the Irie Building. yes, yeah, Jamaica and the New York. Yeah, it's a terrible Jamaican accent. Awakening Goliath and the Clan. Meanwhile, adjusting to the new world, they are aided by the sympathetic police officer Elisa Maza, and quickly come to conflict with the plotting Zenatos. In addition to dealing with the Gargoyles' attempt to adjust to New York City. The series also incorporates various supernatural threats to their safety and the world at large. The first season consists of 13 episodes, as do most first seasons for cartoons at the time, including a five-part opening story. The first season was primarily written by Michael Reeves and wife Bryn Chandler Reeves. Second season had a whopping 52 episodes and a long uh, mid-season story arc dubbed by fans as the Gargoyles World uh, Tour in which four of the main characters travel the world encountering others of the same species and confronting uh, mystical as well as science fictional dangers along the way, based upon the increasing writing staff and expanding the short-lived cult uh, classic series at the time. Following Disney's purchase of ABC in '96, the third and final season aired during Saturday morning cartoons on ABC as the gar- as Gargoyles' uh, The Goliath Chronicles behind-the-scenes animation producers and had almost completely changed from Seasons 1 and 2 while on-screen. The Gargoyles' overall relationship with the world as they knew it as well as the audience changed uh, considerably drastically. The series overall uh, bear no creator credit, though Michael Reeves was deemed responsible for the show's format because he wrote the first six episodes and was the primary editor of the show for the first two seasons and describes himself... uh, As I am on the ground floor of creating something iconic, Greg Weissman also describes himself as one of the creators. My money is on Reeves, though, personally, as well as his wife, uh, Bryn, Bryn Reeves, who wrote uh, the first 12 of the 13-episode season, and Steve Perry from Journey. (laughs) uh, He just happens to have the same name. Steve Perry writing (laughs) the last episode uh, of the uh, first season. Shifting a bit to the Shakespearean uh, aesthetic of characters and story plot from Macbeth and Midsummer's Night Dream, uh, they were featured within the show, as well as being influenced by medieval Scottish history, as well as the shows uh, ranging from Adventures of Gummy Bears and the Hill Street Blues, the latter show, inspiring the ensemble format of the series 32nd intro uh, previously on Gargoyles uh, owes them credit, the Hill Street Blues, as a recap of the beginning of the show. In a twist of fate, New York artist Joe Tomasini uh, brought a lawsuit against Disney claiming his copyrighted screenplay and character design had been copied during development and production of the show. Uh, I feel in a sense that there is a pattern personally plagued with copyright infringement with 90s uh, cartoons and its contents because everyone claims something for their own uh, personal gain or maybe they really did mimic his work. I'm not necessarily sure, but that's just my perspective. I digress. The case was thrown out after Disney provided proof that they did not have access to Thomasini's creations. Weissman, a fellow creator, stated uh, in an interview, Gargoyles is still my baby. In May of 2020, I don't own it and I don't get a dime of it being on Disney+. Plus. And yet, it as thrilled as I am, and it represents a chance, even a slim one at that, to bring it back. I've always wanted to do more. I've got a timeline for the show that's 315 pages long. I've got notebooks full of ideas for it spinoffs you know of sorts literally nothing would make me happier than to go back to do more for the show end quote that's powerful stuff yet here we are with no new episodes thank you Wiseman, for keeping the dream alive you know maybe someday we'll be able to live that dream transition to the vhs release featuring the first five episode plot awakening released into a single film edit, released January 31st, 1995, and LaserDisc by Buena Vista Home Video, a Disney subsidiary. A DVD release in 2013, uh, uh, June 25, and streaming on Disney+, Plus. all episodes as of October 14th, 2019. IGN even ranked the show number 45 on its 2009 list of top 100 animated series of all time. A remarkable spot for the iconic uh, television show. There was even tossed around a live-action film to be adapted by Todd Gamer, who was the executive producer on the project. Uh, the original creator even wrote a draft uh, for the adaptation, but it was rejected. A different Disney executive, Jim Kauf, Kauf, however you want to pronounce it, was hired for the new draft that establishes Goliath as a Gaelic warrior named Goliath McGrath, who makes a deal with a good sorcerer to battle an evil, evil sorcerer named Morgan. Yes, Morgan Freeman is an evil sorcerer. No. Just thought it was funny. But there's actually more uh, of the uh, story arc to the one that uh, just mentioned as Goliath McGrath. I just didn't decide to write it down. So by all means, if you want to go check it out, it's out there. Uh, Disney favored the script, but uh, sadly, the project was sca- uh, sacked and abandoned. It was deemed too expensive to produce because of the scene, uh, because of the series ended its run. It would have been pointless in Disney's eyes. Uh, that's preposterous because there is more than enough money and ideas to utilize, in my opinion, of course, and perspective. It just seems Disney had no interest to please the fans at this point. As of late uh, June 2018, even uh, director and actor from uh & Peel, Jordan Peel of Get Out, arguably his best film, pitched his own idea to Disney, but clearly it wasn't picked up. So it's been... Almost five years, about four and a half years since there was an idea pitched for a live action film, which would be pretty cool. The show did create, though, some killer fucking toys. Let me get into that. There is a quiver of 22-inch action figures and vehicles along with a Castle Grayskull playset from He-Man. No, I'm just kidding. There is a castle, but it's obviously not Castle Grayskull. Shout out to He-Man. Released by Kenner Toys, who did uh, Star Wars Toys and many others in 1995. Excuse me. Let me move my uh, notebook pages here. Furthermore, a world based on the show was considered to be in the franchise uh, Kingdom Hearts, the video game, but was scrapped. That would have been a fucking cool. I would have loved that because I love the first two games. The, fr- the third installment fell short in my perspective. Shout out to Kingdom Hearts. Great game. At least the first two. In 2018, various Funko Pops were released. And in August of 2021, Ravensburger, what an interesting uh, name. Hey, welcome to McDonald's. Yeah, can I get a Raven Burger, Extra Crow? Yeah, anyway. Ravensburger released a board game a little late to the show, but sure, why not? Uh, Starting that year uh, with NECA Toys, began producing merchandise, uh, plush toys, as well as action figures. I think this brand's going places. The quality of products that they're making for fans is just genuine class. All right, side three. I'm just plowing through the uh, Taj Mahal here. Alright, All right, you know what? Hang on a second. This is weird. I've never had this instance before. Both records say side one and two. I just gotta pay attention. Wow. Alright, there it is. Genuine class. Last for the merchandise. A uh, crappy Tiger Electronics handheld. Made as well, apparently. Uh, card Gargoyle's Night Fright. I had, I believe, a Power Rangers and the Lion King a Tiger Electronic device. Uh, I'd say leave it to the niche, nostalgic rose-colored glasses back then. Uh, the market then was whatever, and now people like them, whatever. They're not necessarily too crazy, crazy expensive, but they're pretty lame in my opinion. Conclusively, on the topic of gargoyles, IMDb rates it at an 8.1 out of 16,838 viewers. That's impressive. It goes to show that Disney first... Animated drama series will not be forgotten and is adored by fans. Perhaps in the future we may see a resurgence, but only time will tell. Transitioning lastly to one of my favorite mini consoles, the TurboGrafx Mini, known as the PC Engine in Japan or the Core Graphics in Europe. It's an emulation device modeled by publisher Konami that of uh, Castlevania as well as Contra, the publisher, and even the Ninja Turtles uh, Turtles in Time on uh, Super Nintendo. <clears throat> this device's price uh, has skyrocketed. I picked it up for $100 on offer up a few years ago, loose, and I've seen it as much as $300 now. Yeah, a tiny little piece of plastic for $300 on eBay. The mini model is a reflection of NEC's original TurboGrafx-16 designed by Hudson Soft, uh, creators of Bomberman and Adventure Island, a developer that Konami uh, acquired in 2012. The mini emulates the console's 8-bit hardware and the JP, Japanese model, featuring 58 games, and the international has uh, 57 games. It was set to release March 19, 2020, uh, through Amazon exclusively, similar to how uh, the Genesis Model 2 is slash was currently, but was delayed except for Japan's uh, release because of COVID-19. It was later shipped to North America May 22 of 2020. May 22nd, whatever. I don't know why I said it so weird. And <laughs> Europe June 5th of 2020. The Mini can support two USB controllers out of the box, unlike the original console featuring only one controller. But if you purchase a TurboTap, then you can add more controllers up to five players. The controller is an exact replica of the console's original with turbo buttons included, same decal and colors as well as feel. Uh, 60 titles were announced overall for the console and 54 are unique because there are secret games you can find by pressing various buttons when starting a game. A pretty cool feature for a mini console, if you ask me. The Japanese model includes 24 American games, 34 PC Engine games as well. However, the European model has 25 Turbo games that we got in the States and 32 PC Engines and uh, the Japanese games. The title Splatterhouse is uh, counted as an exclusive to a specific region. Fun fact, Splatterhouse Original, Wanpaku Graffiti, for Famicom is the first installment and is fun. It's a difficult game, uh, similar to Ghouls and Ghosts. It's, it's pretty cool, though. Castlevania, a PC Engine CD-ROM game, includes a mini game named Akumajo Dracula Peke. Fun fact, on the Famicom and Game Boy... Relating to uh, Castlevania, there is a little game called Kid Dracula, Kumajo Joe Dracula, uh, which is a kiddish variant, more cartoony in the franchise and well worth your time. Even Wampaku Graffiti is well worth your time. Both, both installments are just really fun action platformers, just goofy cartoony, but very, very Japanese, but a lot of fun. I picked up both physical carts or cartridges when I was in Japan. I, I made sure to do that. Moving on. The shooter uh, Soldier Blade also had its own caravan, while Gradius and Fantasy Zone and Salamander, all shooters of course, shmups, whatever, same thing, received arrangements as near arcade ports. Now, Salamander's release statewide is known as Life Force, also by Konami, on the NES, basically the same game, or Salamander elsewhere. As I stated, there are five alternate versions that can be played, highlighting them and holding select while booting up the desired game. Salamander includes Force Gear and TwinBee returns as mini games. The release was revealed through the Japanese YouTube channel by Yokinami excuse my Japanese. Revealing all titles for all regions. The Japanese controller maker Hori released accessories including a turbo pad, a multi-tap as well that adds players. Excuse me, that adds up to five different players on an AC adapter that accepts USB-A to USB-B connectors. However, on March 6th of 2020, Konami announced a delay of the peripheral accessory because of the pandemic. The original technology of the late 80s, uh, the original uh, predecessor piece, features a Hue card accessibility. Uh, I'm shedding some light on the original console so you guys can get an idea of comparatively to what we have now as far as the mini emulation uh, powerhouses. Features Hue card accessibility for the game cartridge that looks a lot like ATM cards, which is the game. On the back, there is a CD ROM attachment for its peripheral because it, it's basically a separate system, that of kind of how like Sega CD was, uh, in a sense. The console itself is a solid piece of nostalgic quality. It's lightweight and it's similar in structure uh, to its predecessor. Now, the interface is easy and unique, featuring also four save states uh, for saving and loading, unlike the PS1, which only had one. So point to TurboGrafx Mini. Uh, you can change to play the Japanese exclusives as well when you're playing. It's pretty cool. You can go to the settings and completely alter the uh, settings, and you can play the Japanese exclusive games. Uh, steering away from, I would recommend steering away from the RPGs unless you know kanji. Otherwise, the games are perfectly playable. The uh, platformers is in the shooters. No problem. As I stated, it features Hue cards and CD games that are well worth a playthrough and will save you money if interested because the console and games are just very expensive to collect for, just like Sega Saturn or Sega CD games. Uh, I'll give you an idea of the original specs. It has an 8-bit CPU central processing unit, but a 16-bit graphics processor released in 1987, thus leave the name, Graphics 16 So it was, in theory, the first 16-bit console, if you will. And the final model was discontinued in 1994 due to its lack of popularity and sales in the States compared to Nintendo and Sega. Its rise in popularity has grown over the years and has some quality shooters, platformers, and dungeon crawlers uh, to relive your childhood and play these titles any which way you can. I highly recommend it. Lastly, ooh, a little banjo. Nice Taj Mahal. All right. I told you I'd come back to Pantera's 10s. Okay. This is what I was able to find. The latest meaning and reading behind the song's uh, explanation is about uh, Phil and Semel's heroin addiction, also quite possibly pronounced tense instead of tens, or the fact that tens slash tense is a measurement of heroin. Uh, it's just I wouldn't opt to do heroin personally or an opioid of sorts listening to metal if if I did such things I would rather listen to something a little more mellow than something so crazy but that's just not me that's obviously being hypothetical neither here nor there well there you have it episode 10 in the bag uh, thank you guys for listening thank you for the support my name Tyler this is Marshall Media Montage episode 10 by all means you can send me an email uh, I sent you or I told you guys both emails, but I'll tell you again: shazz.boxx.88 at hotmail.com or letz.surf.88 at gmail.com. By all means, uh, questions, comments, concerns, we can collaborate together. Anybody, by all means. I'm very fortunate to be here and I'm happy to do this. Thank you for the support and love. Have a good day.